So let's have God's Word now open us to Ezra 4, and we'll also look at Nehemiah 4. This is how it reads, Ezra 4, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the head of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerus, Bishlam, and Mithridath and Tabalil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Emilites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is the copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to your king, the Jews... Who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. And the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that the city is a rebellious city, hurtful to king and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That is why the city was laid waste. We made known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Let's now turn to Nehemiah 4, and we'll start from verse 12 and go on to 23. This is how it reads. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest place, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, 
in open places. I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and saw and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Join with me in prayer once more. Father in heaven, we thank you that by your word, your people are guided and given life as we are pointed to Christ himself. We ask, Lord, this morning for the gift of salvation, for the gift of renewal, that you would continue to spur us on to return and rebuild, that you would teach us what that means. We pray this in his name. Amen. St. Paul's Cathedral has a long history of being rebuilt. And as we talk about returning and rebuilding, I thought it'd be nice to look at history to see an example of some of the experiences of rebuilding and returning. The most notable reference point when we talk about St. Paul's Cathedral is often called Old St. Paul's. And there's a picture up there for you. It was built by the Normans after the fire that happened in 1087. However, it should be noted that while Old St. Paul's was being rebuilt, yet another fire threatened its walls. And in 1135, the cathedral was not officially consecrated until 150 years later. 150 years worth of building projects. The rebuild took so long that even the modernity of architecture changed from Romanesque, characterized by semicircular arches, to Gothic, which is characterized by pointed ogival. I had to practice that word. It basically means it kind of points up, like maybe perhaps what we are used to seeing. During the 150-year time, even the modernity of architecture had shifted. But yet again, in 1640, 
During the English Civil War, Old St. Paul's suffered much damage and was ultimately brought to devastation once more by, guess what? The Great Fire of London in 1666. This would be the third great fire that had destroyed this cathedral. Three years later, a man by the name of Sir Christopher Wren was officially tasked to redesign this grand cathedral, to rebuild so that people may return. And we're told that the final stone of this cathedral was laid by Wren's son, Christopher Jr., years later. But they did consecrate this cathedral for use in 1697, which means that it took 31 years after the Great Fire of London to reestablish this place of worship. It's said that at this opening ceremony, the Right Reverend Henry Compton, who was currently at that time the Bishop of London, preached on Psalm 122. And you can look up and it says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And you can imagine as they have gathered here in the worship service to open up St. Paul's Cathedral once more, that they were no longer allowed to sing, fire fall down on us we pray. Cut that out of the song bank, right? You can imagine the praise leader singing, consuming fire. Pastor goes, <clears throat> no, no, no more songs about fire. No more songs about fire. So even from history, we can see that rebuilding, much like our text today, much like what you and I will experience here at Eternal Life Mission Church, is difficult. And it's never easy. By the way, I should add that this illustration was brought to you by the BBC. No, I'm just kidding. Wikipedia. I know, I know, Wikipedia is not an official academic source, but it's the poor man's library. As we began last week on our new sermon series, we were reminded that the God we worship is a God of re. And Pastor Stephen reminded us again that he's a God of renewal, revival. He's the redeemer, and he calls his people to repentance so that he can renew us once more, so forth, so forth. And we saw that in the book of Ezra that God had called his people, the Israelites, to rebuild the temple. As we sojourn together this morning through the fog of a long and dimly lit pandemic, we believe also that we are being called to return and rebuild. Church, if our vision is to see God's kingdom come, his will be done, in our homes and communities and the world, then we must return and be present. Church, if our mission is to make disciples who live out the gospel in word and deed, then we must rebuild together. So we will look at three simple questions this morning. You can see up there, what are we rebuilding? What can we expect? And how should we respond? And the reason I want to start with the question of the purpose, what are we rebuilding, is oftentimes when we start an endeavor, obstacles will come, opposition will meet us, and sooner or later we have to ask the question, what is the point of all this? 
So first question, what are we rebuilding? Is it simply an ideal of what church is, of what community should be, of what love amongst us used to be? As mentioned in Ezra 1, we remember that the exiled people of God started to return. And as they returned, God called them to rebuild the temple, which is also known as the house of the Lord. This is important because this temple, this house of the Lord, is where the Israelites, God's people, met with him intimately and personally, together as a community, as they worshipped him. At this time, we know, being long-time exiles, that the people of God returned home only to feel like strangers again. How many of you can relate as you sit here or go back to your familiar places that feel so unfamiliar? So the rebuilding of the temple gave the Israelites a central focal point where the community would gather once more, but more importantly, worship together their God as one people. So they sojourned together through the morning fog of a long and dimly lit place of exile. A new dawn, a new beginning. They returned and started to rebuild. So Eternal Life Mission Church, folks who have gathered here, what are we proposing that we're rebuilding? Is it this church building? Is it the lawn outside? Who doesn't like a nice green lawn? Is it this chapel? It could use a little, right? Is it these pews that wobble? Is it the carpet that is tilling and fraying? No, friends. We are returning to rebuild something much more. The temple in the Old Testament, again, right, represented the place where God met with his people. But in the current New Testament, we have something better. Look at the words of Jesus here in John 2.19. This is what he says. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. People thought he was crazy when he said this. Destroy the temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Do you know how long it took to build it up again? You're out of your mind, Jesus, the people thought. But later, we realize as we read through God's faithful word that Jesus was referring to himself and the resurrection that took place three days after he was crucified for the sins of the world, for our sins, you and I. If I put it simply, Jesus is the new temple. In Jesus, the Old Testament usage of the temple and its significance is fulfilled. Jesus is the true and better temple where we can meet with God. Jesus is the final sacrifice for our sins, so there needs to be no more sacrifices. Jesus is the central focal point where we can gather as a community and meet and worship our God together. If I put it to you in another way, in the new spiritual temple of Jesus, he is the cornerstone and we are the living stones that are being used to build up God's house in God's household here. If you don't believe me, let's look at Ephesians 2. Follow along. I'm going to highlight a few sections here. Some of you may know, and if you do, it would be a good reminder. If you don't, now you'll know. Ephesians 2, 19, 22. So then, 
Paul is speaking to the church, those who are in Christ Jesus. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, we're not called to return and rebuild some physical building or a church or a chapel or do renovations. We're not simply being recalled to relaunch and rebuild the intangible things of just simply gathering or doing programs and events and more Bible studies and more community groups. We're not here to rebuild the, the fellowship hall and have more donuts, although that would be nice. We're not here to rebuild some tangible, physical thing that we can hold and say, yes, now this is the place where God will meet with me. No, we're gathered here because as Christ unites himself to us, as he unites us to one another, as we gather, as we worship, we are like living stones, we're told, being placed next to the cornerstone himself so that the house of God may be built up. I don't know if it's going to be Romanesque or Gothic, but it's going to be built up Why? So that it would be a dwelling place for God and his people and that the household of God would meet with him. We're being told that in Christ and through us, we begin to form a temple where God is ever-present, where we never have to feel alone, where we're no longer aliens or strangers but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household universal and God's household here. Now, I know that sounds beautiful, but some of us don't quite feel it. And friends, it's because that's something we have to really work towards together. If you feel like the Israelites who have returned only feel like strangers again, then we need to remember That you are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but that you belong in Christ Jesus to this household of God. That as a living stone, we are called to be laid next to the cornerstone himself. Again, so that we can gather together as a community, but more importantly, so that we can meet with our God as one people and worship. If I can put it to you very plainly, Eternal Life Mission Church, or any church in that matter, Eternal Life Mission Church is not 706 Whitmer Road. It's not this chapel. It's the people of God who gather. It's a household of God made up of living stones. And if that's the case, there's no place we can't go. There's no obstacle we can't overcome. And there's no opposition too hard. But here is the reality as we look at the second question. What can we expect? Friends, church, it will be hard. 
And I want to plainly state this. It'll take more than desire to simply come back to church. It'll take more than good intentions and friendly greetings. It'll take more than willful spirits and a positive attitude. And how do we know this? Well, look at the type of oppositions that the Israelites faced. Look at Ezra. Here's a quick sampling. In Ezra 4, there are so many obstacles we see. And I'm just going to go through them very quickly. First, we're told in verse 1 that they're faced by adversaries. The adversaries of Judah and Benjamin approached. People who were against them. Deception, verse 2. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. They're saying, hey, we're we're doing the same thing here. Let's build with you. But in verse 1, we're told that they're adversaries. So they're facing deceptions and lies. Discouragement, verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. Threats and made them afraid to build. Conspiracy and bribed counselors against them. Frustration to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus to Darius or Darius. That's 20 years, we're told, that that frustration happened. And in verse 6 of Ezra, it takes a quick break out of the initial narrative to tell us that they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants, and this section covers a hundred-year span as it pertains to the wall as well. So you thought the building of old St. Paul's was catastrophic and difficult. This is the people of God trying to rebuild the temple and the wall so that they can gather and worship. And all throughout, adversaries, deceptions, discouragement, threats, conspiracies, frustration, accusations for 20, for 100 years. Why would it be any different for us, friends? Is it just because we want to gather and we're good people and we have a positive attitude that everything should go the way we think? Just because we think God has called us to, do we think that every door will open so widely and freely and we'll just coast downhill? No. I don't want to be the guy who's all doom and gloom and say, guys, we got to get ready. We got to get ready. Let's go. Let's get ready. We can't rest. We can't. I don't want to get too excited. But what I do want to point out is this. Because every, in, in every other area of our lives, when we are trying to do something, we are very willing to accept that it will be difficult. Nothing, nothing good worth doing comes easy, right? That's a common philosophy we all accept. Hey, if it's something beautiful, it's worth fighting for. Accept it. No road is easy. But for some reason, as Christians, when it comes to the church, I'm guilty of this too, We think that if we are simply obeying God, that all the doors just fling wide open. Swing wide, O chariot. We think that everything should be easy and open, and there will be no disruptions, no opposition. Because we have this this elementary understanding that if, if we just simply do what God is calling us to do, that he better make it easy. If I'm going to be faithful and obedient, then God, you better take my hand, take the wheel, and take me along for the ride. Smooth sailing. But it's not true, is it? Oftentimes in the Bible, when God has called his people, says, Abraham, go out to a far land. 
You don't know where you're going to go. But I will take care of you. And through you, I will redeem nations. Jonah, go to that place where the people are not listening. Tell them to repent. Jesus, son, go down to the creation that you made and minister to them. Tell them the kingdom is coming. Lay down your life for their sins so that many sons and daughters can be brought to glory. What I want to highlight is here that just because God has called us to a task, yes, he will equip us. Yes, he will make straight our path. But the path is narrow. And if this makes any sense, the path is heavenward. If we look in Ezra, right, the letter that they write, the letter that they write to the king is basically saying, hey, we got to stop these people from building their temple and their wall. Because if they do, then the governance will fall. They're going to stop paying taxes. We stop paying tolls, and the revenue is going to decline. It's a threat to the worldly way of life because the people of God, they have always been called to travel, not on the easy road, but a road that is narrow and upward, heavenward. Nehemiah 4.4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt. Nehemiah 4.8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Nehemiah 4.11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stopped the work. Their lives were in danger. Yet they continued to return and rebuild. Now, I want to be careful of the implications here. There may be times and instances, there may be times and instances where we face direct and concrete opposition from the local communities around us, the local governance, and the overall government. There may be times. But we have to be really wise and discerning before we yell too quickly, that's the devil oppressing us. But what does remain true, when I do believe it's implying here and can be applied to all of us, is that when we are following after God's calling, yes, he will equip us. Yes, he will make straight our path. Yes, he will keep our foot from stumbling. But his grace will be sufficient for the way if a thorn may be ever present in our side. That if we fall, he'll pick us up. That if we get lost, he'll find us. If we get tired, He'll strengthen us. If we mess up, he will renew us. Some of you know the old hymn. God renews our failing powers with his might from day to day. And in mercy on us showers, grace sufficient for the way. Though the loveless streets be dreary, harsh and bleak the mountain ways, we shall walk and not be weary, clasp his hand and sing his praise. Friends, this is true for us as individuals and as a church. You know, when I felt the call to ministry in college, Jason, unlike you, I experienced the common college experience, unfortunately, as well as uh, the call to repentance. And then I think the punishment was to go deeper into ministry full time. But when I 
sensed the call to ministry in college, I was really torn. Some of you guys can sympathize with my situation. I'm the oldest of my siblings. I have a younger sister. I'm the son. And in many ways, for an immigrant family, I was the grand insurance policy and retirement plan. I was set up with everything I needed growing up in the hopes that I would support my family financially, that I would make life worth it through all the trials and tribulations. And it wasn't an oppressive type of expectation. It was understood, and I accepted it. And so when I felt that the Lord was calling me to be a pastor, I thought, no way, this is crazy. I got to succeed. I got to get credentials, degrees, get a stable enough job, do something so that my parents can retire and I can take care of them, be in a position where I can't be moved or stumbled. And I said, God, if I go into ministry, none of that is guaranteed, as if it's guaranteed at all, right? But I thought to myself then, as if none of that would be guaranteed. After eight months, I think, I think it was eight, about eight months, almost every day, I prayed, God, are you really calling me to ministry? God, I don't want to go to ministry. God, I need to be there for my parents. Who's going to take care of my parents? After eight months of praying and wrestling with the Lord, I said, okay. I really do believe from the affirmation around me, from what the Spirit is doing inside, that the Lord is calling me to ministry, and I got to see if it's true. So I applied to Westminster. I got in. I started to attend the fall of 2011. And I remember thinking at that time, man, I'm finally here. Finally at Westminster, being trained to be a pastor, and I'm doing what the Lord has called me to do. Within weeks, I had some family issues come up that I had to become a part-time student. I was withdrawing out of classes quickly, helping my parents at the store, and eventually had to withdraw completely from seminary. I was no longer a student, I was no longer in training, I was just working and helping my family. And I thought, I, I remember being so confused and frustrated and angry at God, and I thought, God, I listened to you, I obeyed you. I thought, I thought, I, I didn't expect everything to be easy, but I, I thought, I, I, I never thought this. That I had to leave seminary, work, be aimless. God, what are you doing? I'm still stuck here at this church. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> a tough crowd, tough crowd. But in all honesty, in that season where I faced much opposition, where my plans were sidetracked, the Lord taught me so much about his goodness, his faithfulness, about the church, about the particular calls in my life. Some of you guys can probably relate. Church, as a community, if we're being faithful to God, it's almost a guarantee that the road is not easy. So then how should we respond? Very quickly, the last point. How should we respond? If our goal is to return and rebuild the spiritual dwelling place of God so that the household of God may meet with him and worship as one people, if we can expect that there will be many difficult roads ahead, how should we respond? We see in Nehemiah 4, when the people started to rebuild the wall of 
Jerusalem, they faced great opposition. So much so where their lives were in danger. If you look at Nehemiah 4.12, At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said, uh, said to us ten times, You must return. You must return. You must return. I'll stop there. You must return. It's getting crazy out there. People are coming to kill us if we keep this construction project up for the Lord. You got to come back. You got to come back. What did they do? First thing I'll note is they prayed and they prepared. Look at verse 8 through 9 in Nehemiah 4. They prayed and they prepared. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed. I hope we don't just simply gloss over that. And we prayed. I want to read that again. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. To kill them, to take their lives, to frustrate their cause. What did they do? And we prayed to our God. And set a guard as a protection against them day and night. What did they do? They prayed. They asked the Lord for strength. They asked the Lord for unity, for guidance, for protection, for provision. They prayed. They prayed. They prayed. But then they also prepared, didn't they? They set a guard. They stationed them. So that day and night, people in the wall will be protected. They prayed. And they prepared. They prayed. And they prepared. What else did they do? Nehemiah 4.14, look with me. And I looked and arose and said, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. Continuing, verse 17 to 18. Next slide. Those who carried burdens meaning the construction equipment or whatever they needed to do, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other hand. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Put it simply, to quote an up-and-coming New Testament scholar, they had a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. Reverend Stephen Joe. Upcoming New Testament scholar. I'm just busting your chops. That gives us an imagery, doesn't it? They had a sword in the one hand and a shovel in the other. What should we do? Eternal Life Mission Church, friends, everyone is gathered here. As we return and rebuild, if opposition comes, what should we do? Pray and prepare. Church, we should pray. We must pray. That's probably the first place we should begin and continue to do all throughout all the other steps. Pray that the Lord continues to lead, protect, provide, strengthen, remind, renew, redeem, recall, and prepare to be on guard, to do the work of an evangelist, to be ready in and out of season, to love, to forgive, to be bold, to speak, to accept, to reject, to be stationed, day and night, to pray and to prepare. 
What else should we do? Fight and build. Sword in one hand, shovel in the other. What do I mean by this? Don't go searching on Amazon swords, folks. All right, I don't want to see any guys here next week. Pastor, I got my sword. No, 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 no. Hold on, slow down, hold on. Wait a minute. What do we mean by fight? It means to put on the whole armor of God. If I can just highlight two, sword and shield. We're told in Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. I hope it's okay how you mentioned two, even though I'm not mentioning the whole armor. I'll just, I'll just highlight two, the sword. I'm told that the sword is the word of God, the Bible, Scripture, God's word. So we have God's word on one hand. I'm told that the shield is faith in God, the shield of faith. We have the sword in one hand, the word of God, to guide us, to give us wisdom, to teach us, to correct us, to reprove us, to lead us to repentance, to build us up, to renew us. The sword of God, the word of God, we have that in one hand. We fight and we build. We join, we serve, we participate, we labor together, we take stewardship, we make sacrifices, we give, we take, we receive, we continue to give some more, we love, we pour out, we pour in, we embrace, we cry out. Pray, prepare, fight, and build. Let me conclude with Psalm 122 as we think about returning and rebuilding with the expectation that there will be opposition. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Church, let us return and rebuild. We can be sure that there will be many opposition along the way. But if we turn our eyes to Jesus, we can look back and see that he is faithful. We can look ahead, believing he is able. Join with me in prayer.